morning. Let's turn to our scripture for the sermon this morning in Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. You look in your bulletin, it says the word sermon, And then under that it says, God speaks to us through the pastor as he faithfully expounds what the Bible says and how it applies to our lives. So let's pray that this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your unworthy vessel the words that you want us to hear this morning, that your name might be lifted up, that hearts might be moved toward you, and that your name would go forth from here to all the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When I was, um, when my children were younger, I would tell them stories before they went to bed at night. I would make up characters, their names, the places, events. I asked my, my children recently, do you remember those? And they said, yeah. Well. Something about those stories was easy for them to remember. They may not remember all the details, but they remember some of the basic people involved in those stories. The scripture passage today is about a historical event that took place roughly 3,500 years ago, and it's told in the form of a story. Now, another fancy word for a story in literary terms is a narrative. And narratives make up about 40% of the Old Testament. And they were probably first told as part of Israel's oral history before things were written down. Now, because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, you can be very sure, we can be very sure, that they were about real historical events, about real people, real places. In that way, they're dissimilar from the stories that I told my children when they were little. But in a similar way, these stories, were told, these stories were meant to be remembered, just as my children remembered those stories from when they were little. And today's passage is one of those stories. It's a story by itself, but it's also part of a bigger story. 
Sometimes we use another fancy literary word to describe this big story, the word metanarrative. The metanarrative in the Bible is the story of God's creation and what happened to it. God created the heavens and the earth, it says in Genesis 1. And it's good, but humanity rebels and falls. The fall of God's creation happens through mankind's sin. The redemption of God's creation happens through Jesus Christ in his first coming. And then the final restoration of mankind and creation through Jesus' second coming and with the new heavens and the new earth. In short, the meta-narrative is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And in this big story or this meta-narrative, we have other smaller stories that each connect to that bigger story. The story today takes place after several other smaller stories happen, those smaller stories that you're probably very familiar with. The Israelites left Egypt, if you remember, and passed through the Red Sea. And remember what God did there? After hundreds of years of slavery, God's people, God's people Israel, have victory over Egypt, allowing them to plunder the world's most powerful, strongest, and most feared nation taking large amounts of gold with them, leaving their lives of slavery by simply walking away with Egypt's treasure in tow. It's an amazing story of an actual historical event that was accomplished without any military action or force. Israel defeated Egypt, but there wasn't even a battle. There was no military leader other than the Lord himself. God was all the army that Israel needed to defeat Pharaoh and the Egyptians, leaving behind their life of slavery. That's one related story, related to our story this morning in Joshua 4. And this story is a prophetic story in many ways, where slavery symbolizes sin. In John 8, 35, Jesus tells us that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The Israelites were set free from slavery by God's intervention. The killing of the lamb, the Passover, the blood on the doorpost protecting God's people from death and eventual freedom they experienced from their harsh overlords. These are foreshadows of what Jesus would eventually do for God's people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. When Pharaoh goes back on his word, and begins to chase the Israelites, God parts the Red Sea and allows the Israelites to walk through unharmed. When Pharaoh and his army attempt to cross, God closes the water on them. Once again, God intervenes and saves Israel from their enemy. All these stories are historical events that are told to us as narratives about God's mighty hand at work. But alongside these triumphs, there are also times of failure and disappointment. We're told about how Israel turned away and forgot God's faithfulness. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive God's revelation, the Israelites got impatient, and then they pressured Aaron, who used that gold, the the, the same gold that they had taken as plunder from the Israelites that was a sign of God's mighty hand. And instead of using it to worship God, the God who rescued them. Aaron fashions it into a golden calf, an idol, a false god, declaring 
to Israel that this is your God. This is the God who saved you. Can you imagine that? They failed to remember the true God and instead created one of their own. Later on, Israel cowered when most of the spies brought back a bad report of the mighty inhabitants of the promised land. They failed to remember how powerful God was. Along the way, Israel forgot about the horrors that they had experienced in Egypt. And once again, decided that life was better back when they were slaves. Eventually, Moses passes away and Joshua leads the nation of Israel. They're advancing towards the promised land. In chapter 3 of Joshua, God does yet another miracle by drying up the waters of the Jordan River so that the people can cross over to the other side and claim the land God has promised to them. Now, although the Jordan River was likely a smaller body of water than the Red Sea, it was still an insurmountable obstacle that Israel could not overcome without God's help. The river was at flood stage, which it tells us in chapter 3 and 4 of Joshua, so it could not be crossed, humanly speaking. But God once again intervenes and rescues his people. Now, this takes us to the story that we read this morning in Joshua 4. It begins with God telling Joshua to have one man from each of the 12 tribes to take a stone from the middle of the riverbed and bring it to the river bank. The river waters had not returned from being dried up, so they were standing in the middle of this waterless riverbed. The 12 men each get a stone, put it on their shoulder, and carried it to the bank in order to set up a memorial. Now, what's a memorial for? It's to remember, as we've talked about this morning, this is our theme. It's to remember. It's to remember something. In this case, it was to remember God's intervention, his presence with them in the form of the Ark of the Covenant, and his actions, his saving actions, his mighty work of drying up the waters of the Jordan River so that they could cross over into God's promises. It was part of a list of God's saving acts that Israel was called to memorialize. It's exactly what the psalmist writes about that we read this morning, Psalm 105, verses five and six, which tells us to remember the wonders that God has done and the miracles, the judgments he's pronounced. God dried up the waters of the Jordan River so the people and the ark could pass. Now, at this point, you need to ask a very simple question. What does it mean to remember? How does the Bible use this simple word? In some cases, it's pretty straightforward. We're just supposed to remember something that happened in the past. But there are other places that require a little bit more of an explanation. The word is used in the Bible in slightly different ways. In Genesis 8.1, for example, the Bible says God remembered Noah. In Genesis 19.29, the Bible says God remembered Abraham. In Genesis 30.22, the Bible says God remembered Rachel. Now, in each case, the idea certainly is not that God had been really busy and had other matters going on and had forgotten, and then suddenly he remembered and said, oh yeah, I just remembered, I promised Noah and his family that I was going to rescue them from the floodwaters. That's not what remember means in this case. The word remember in this instance includes three aspects. First, it's related to a historical event that happens. Second, 
A particular meaning is ascribed to that historical event. And then third, a promise, sometimes a covenant, is connected to that event. Joshua was being told to have Israel create this memorial for the future generations to remember the historical event itself, that God miraculously dried up the waters of the Jordan River so Israel could cross, but there was also meaning behind that event. It wasn't just a historical event. In verse six, it explicitly, stated, it explicitly states that when future generations inquire of the meaning, this is what you are to say, that God's presence represented by the Ark of the Covenant was powerfully guiding and protecting Israel. From this, we can derive that God was pleased with Israel's faithfulness in following, Israel, in following their, his appointed leader, Joshua, and that this God was the same God who brought Israel out of Egypt, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And finally, the promise, the covenant that God made with Noah, Abraham, Moses prior to this was something God had not forgotten about. Despite Israel's previous unfaithfulness, there was the idea here that this event was to be remembered. It was a historical event. It had meaning, and it was associated with a promise. So when we remember the stories of the Bible, oftentimes we need to remember that to remember those events, all three of these things are involved. So let's take a look at events. As I just mentioned, the story of Joshua and the Israelites crossing the Jordan includes these three elements. These were real historical happenings, real historical events, and as such, we naturally connect with them. We think about ourselves, perhaps, in the midst of that situation. What would we do? Stories have a way of drawing us in and allowing us to be a part of them. Bible stories or narratives are events that include the lives of both individuals as well as God's covenant people. And as we read this story today, we're called to connect our lives to the people that we read about and God's actions. One of my seminary professors, professors Dr. John Frame, defines theology in this way. He says, the human attempt to apply the Bible to people's questions, and indeed all human needs is what theology is all about. Now when we read a Bible story and connect it to our lives, we're actually engaging in theological reflection, according to Dr. John Frame. So that's what we need to do today. Scripture provides us with the compass or the direction to do that. Another fancy word for this compass or this direction is a normative. The Bible provides us with the normative in that it contains the events, the historical events, the meaning of those events, and the promises associated with those events. That we need to understand what these stories are all about. And all of these would be applied to our lives as individuals as well as to our corporate covenant community. So this morning I want to share a story about my personal life and how this has worked in my life. About 18 years ago, no more than two miles from this very spot, I was at a restaurant with my family. At that time, we only had two kids. Now we have three. Our family was getting ready to enjoy a dinner when suddenly, completely out of the blue, 
I began to feel numbness on my left side. Within 45 minutes, I was in a significant state of paralysis and was in an ambulance headed for the hospital. My blood pressure had skyrocketed and my body was in shock, according to the EMTs. And after a full month of hospitalization, which included rehab, the doctors were baffled. They had no idea what had happened to me. Later on, after consulting with Johns Hopkins' top neurologist, it was determined that I had a stroke, an unusual rare kind of stroke called a spinal stroke in my C1, to be precise. A fairly rare occurrence, yes, and the residual effects were that now I have this weird condition called Brown-Saccard syndrome, named after the French physiologist who discovered the condition in 1850. The stroke left this lesion on my C1 spine that resulted in nerve damage such that my nerve function is diminished in different ways. On my left side, I can't feel or I can't do regular motor type skills normally. On my right side, I can't feel temperature and I can't feel pain. So I've lived with this brown saccard for nearly 20 years now. And it's not a degenerative disease, but it is permanent and its effects are irreversible. This story that I just shared happened to me. It was something I won't ever forget. I can't forget, it lives with me every day. The events themselves, however, are only part of what it means for me to remember this event. The only part, the other part of remembering to ask is what the Israelites would ask. What do these things mean? What do these rocks mean? And for me, what does my stroke mean? Something big happened. And we naturally desire to remember not only the event itself, but what the meaning is behind it. We want to know why God does the things that he does in our lives. The first few years after my stroke, I recovered a certain degree of nerve functioning. I was able to walk again and do other things. But I could no longer do some of the things that I had really cherished in the past, like playing guitar. At first, I was satisfied with the more obvious answers to why God allowed this to happen, like, you know, Romans 8.28. All things work for good, right? But as time went on, I felt like I needed to probe. I needed to press in and, and, and ask the Lord and seek God, what was the meaning behind this? Eight years after my stroke, believe it or not, sounds a little bit like Dr. Strange, but I was in Kathmandu, Nepal. This happened before Dr. Strange, the movie. It was a morning devotion about 2 Corinthians 12. And the pastor was an old pastor in the PCA named Ron Shaw. And he talked about Paul, how Paul petitions the Lord three times to take away the thorn in his flesh. And God's response is, no, I'm not going to take it away, basically. But my power is perfected in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. All of a sudden, it made sense. God did this for a reason. My bodily weakness, my brown saccard condition, my thorn in the flesh suddenly made sense. Paul knew God did these things to prevent him from being proud. And it made sense to me that this is how God works in us. 
not just me, but in all of us. He allows trials to occur in our lives, difficult things, both temporary things and permanent things, in order to remind us that we are dependent on him for everything. And his grace every single moment of our lives. This speaks not only to me, but to all of us. God wants to remind us of our creatureliness, that we depend on him, and that this is exactly how he created us. This is good. Through trials, whether this is, there's disease or, or sickness or pain, suffering both physical, emotional, spiritual, God speaks to us. In C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pain, and refers to it as God's megaphone, refers to pain as God's megaphone. I believe this 2 Corinthians 12 experience is not just something between me and God. It's not my little thing, my little private experience with God. It's a word to all of us. Who among us is not experiencing pain right now or hasn't experienced pain in the past. All of us experience some kind of a thorn in our lives. God wants to speak to us through that thorn, through that pain. But it can only happen if we connect our story to God's bigger story, to that great meta-narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Think back on the story of the Israelites crossing the Jordan. They had to depend on God to deliver them every step of the way. God calls us to depend on him in the same way. But if we're honest with ourselves, we would prefer independence. We don't want to rely on other people and we don't want to rely on God we want to do it ourselves, DIY, do it yourself. We are a culture of DIY. As a nation, we've enshrined independence as a national holiday, and certainly independence is a good thing. Our son just graduated from the University of Maryland, and he has a job, and it's very likely that within a couple years, he'll be making more money than I will. So I'm gonna be mooching off of him. He's becoming more and more independent from mom and dad. And, and that's a good thing, right? But there's another kind of independence that gets us into trouble. When we resist depending on God, which we all do, we resist something that's fundamentally part of our nature, part of who we are as God's creation. In fact, there's a dignity in our dependence on God that we can only see when we look at Jesus Christ. One of John Stott's last books, published posthumously after his death, is called The Radical Disciple. And in that book, this is what John Stott writes. Christ himself takes on the dignity of dependence. He's born a baby, totally dependent on the care of his mother. He needs to be fed. He needs his bottom to be wiped. He needs to be propped up when he rolls over, and yet he never loses his divine dignity. And at the end, on the cross, 
He again becomes totally dependent, limbs pierced, stretched out, unable to move. So in the person of Christ, we learn that dependence does not, cannot deprive a person of their dignity, of their supreme worth. And if dependence was appropriate for the God of the universe, it is certainly appropriate for us. Stott captures beautifully the importance of us turning to God in dependence by, by following, by allowing us to see the example of Jesus Christ. To remember the events, the meaning, and the promises that God has requires us to have the humble posture of dependence modeled for us in Christ Jesus himself. So the first way we connect our story to God's big story is to recognize our dependence on him. This is what we need to do, to connect our story to God's big story. And the first way we do that, as I said, is that we need to depend on God. And then secondly, the way we do that is that we need to do God's math. What do I mean by that? What is God's math? Well, man's math looks at the world, everything that's going on in the present, everything that's gone on in the past, war, destruction, evil, conflict, sickness, and concludes that things are totally out of control. Man's math calculates what the eyes of the flesh see. Man's math ends up in hopelessness and despair. In our personal lives, man's math cannot see hope. So whether it's a wayward child, a debilitating disease, crippling debt, relational conflict, or some other insurmountable obstacle, in man's math, the final sum is hopelessness and despair. But God's math works differently. In God's math, waters dry up. Relationships are healed. Prodigals return. And the insurmountable is overcome. In God's math, there's hope. So we are called to remember not just the 12 stones of the Jordan, but something even greater. We're called to remember the stone that was rolled away from the empty tomb that reminds us of God's math. That in Christ we're delivered from the bondage of sin through his death and resurrection. We're called to remember the stone that the builders rejected, who's the chief cornerstone of our covenant community. We're called to do God's math, not man's math. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, your story has meaning. But without God's big story, without God's math, we cannot make sense of the things that happen in our lives. We cannot conclude the value of our story with man's math. We need to connect our story with God's story by recognizing our dependence on him and by doing God's math. This morning, I believe the Lord through his word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is calling each of us to remember. Remember the rock. Remember who you are and whose you are. If you're not yet a part of God's covenant community and God is stirring your heart this morning, I encourage you to reach out to one of the elders in this congregation. 
Talk to one of them about your desire. Talk to them about what God has spoken to you this morning. If you've left the faith, please listen to God's voice calling you back to remember to do God's math. If you're burdened with all of this happening, all the things that are going on in the evangelical church in America, don't lose heart. God's math is greater than man's math. He will not leave us. He is our cornerstone. He will not forsake us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for what you have done in Jesus Christ. And as we remember the historical event of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, we are called to understand the meaning and to grasp hold of the promises. Father, you've given us the opportunity to hear your word this morning. May your Holy Spirit drive it into our hearts. May your Holy Spirit transform our hearts for our good and for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.